Thanks for joining us on this week's episode, where we continue to discuss the Best Picture nominees from the 6th Academy Awards. I'm Maddie. And I'm Kelsey. Let's find out if the Oscars got it wrong. All right. We're back with more 1933, part two. So we're not going to do our normal intro because we did that in the last episode. We're just going to dive right back into the bracket. If you want to know what's happening in 1933, you're going to have to listen to part one. But spoiler alert, Hitler, mostly. Great Depression, Hitler. (laughs) Yep. So if for some reason you are just listening to part two, when we have more than five nominees, we do some kind of bracket to not cover 10 films in one episode. Or in this case, 12 films. Yeah. So the way our brackets work is we do matchups decided by Rotten Tomato score. If there are ties in the score, it's broken up by number of reviews. This year, as you mentioned, we have 12, not 10. There were 10 nominees, but we added in two films for cultural relevance, King Kong and Duck Soup. So I think what we're going to do is we're going to remind you what the matchups were. We discussed the losers in the last episode, but we'll go through the winners this episode and treat it a little bit like a normal episode. Say, would we have been mad if one of the winners won? Mm-hmm. That kind of thing. Get to our normal conclusion. Yep. So the matchups were number one seed Lady for a Day and number 12 seed Smiling Through. And Lady for a Day won. The next matchup was the number two seed State Fair against the number 11 seed, the actual winner, Cavalcade. And State Fair won. Then we had number three seed King Kong against 10 seed Little Women and King Kong won. Then we had the fourth seed, 42nd Street, against the ninth seed, She Done Him Wrong, 42nd Street won. Then we had the five seed, I Am a Fugitive from a Chain Gang, and eight seed, Duck Soup, and I Am a Fugitive from a Chain Gang won. And finally, we had the sixth seed, The Private Life of Henry VIII, against the seventh seed, A Farewell to Arms, and the sixth seed, The Private Life of Henry VIII won. Turns out Rotten Tomatoes is correct. (laughs) Rotten Tomatoes knows what's up, y'all. Seeds 1 through 6 won, and seeds 7 through 12 went down in the first round. So how do we want to do this? Do we want to start at 1 and go down, or start at 6 and go up? Let's start at 6 and go up. Let's let's get to the number one seed. Okay. So Private Life of King – or not King. There's no King. I always want to say King Henry VIII, and that's not the title. That that was his title, (laughs) but it's not in the title of the movie. The Private Life of Henry VIII. Would you have been mad if it had won Best Picture? Indeed, I would have. How about you? Yes. So for the five seed, I am a fugitive from a chain gang. Would you have been mad if it had won Best Picture? No. Me neither. Okay. 42nd Street. Would you have been mad if it had won Best Picture? I guess no. Yeah, I'll say no as well. I'm a little torn about this one, but we'll get to it. Mm -hmm. How's about King Kong? Would you have been mad if it had won? I'm going to say yes. Yeah, that's fair enough. I probably would say yes, too. Okay. And then State Fair. Would you have been mad if it had won? No. Really? I think I'll say I was going to say yes. I'll stick with it. Yes. Okay. I'm marginal, but I'm marginal on several of these. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Finally, Lady for a Day. Would you have been mad? No. Yeah, no. Okay. So we have three, no, we wouldn't have been mads, both of us. Yes. Two, yes, we would have been mads, and one mixed. So we'll talk about the two, yes, we would have been mads first, The Private Life of Henry VIII and King Kong. Yeah. 
Then we'll go to the next state fair, and then we'll talk about the remaining three. Maybe we should start with the non-nominee, King Kong. Sure. So King Kong is a story you may have heard of or seen before. (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It is familiar to most. Yes. Film director is going on an expedition to a hidden island. His crew and his leading lady have no idea what they're about to get themselves into, but he thinks that they're going to just make the greatest picture of all time. So they go to the secret island and they discover a giant ape. This ape is like five stories tall. That's a real big ape. I think he's not supposed to be that tall. I mean, they get really wonky with how tall he is and their various models are not all to the same scale. I think he's supposed to be between 18 and 30 feet tall. It's still a really big ape. He's big. There is a civilization on this island that sort of worships this ape. It seems like annually they sacrifice a woman to Kong and they spot the actress, the lead actress in this film, and decide, no, we want to sacrifice that lady. She looks like a great sacrifice. Mm -hmm. So they kidnap her. They sacrifice her to Kong. Kong takes her. The rest of the crew have to go and rescue her. Everyone's like, okay, we rescued the lady. Let's get out of here. The director's like, no. If we capture this ape, we are going to be so (laughs) rich. We got to do this. So they capture the ape. They bring it back to New York City with them. They're exhibiting the ape. And the ape has taken a real attachment to the lead actress. He thinks that she is being attacked on stage as he's being exhibited. He breaks out of his chains. He tries to get her. He eventually catches her. He climbs the Empire State Building. They're like, we got to save this actress. We got to stop this ape from rampaging. And then they, they kill King Kong. Yep. And then it ends with the famous line about how it was beauty, beauty that, killed, that the killed the beast. The beast. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> this was an interesting one. For me, I think I have seen that recent 10 or 15 years ago King Kong movie that they made. The 2005 Peter Jackson one. Yeah, but I had not seen this one. I was obviously familiar with the main concept of who and what King Kong is, (laughs) but the plot of it, I didn't really remember. I didn't remember that the stuff about the director hiring a random woman and taking her to an island and i didn't remember that the main plot of the movie is natives capture the white lady to sacrifice her to king kong which is not amazing yeah i also didn't remember even though once i saw the images i was not surprised but i didn't remember there were dinosaurs i loved the dinosaurs Mm -hmm. (laughs) i will say the special effects in this movie are awesome yes really cool looking for 1933 it's incredible they did all sorts of stop motion stuff with the ape, but they also pioneered reverse projection technology. So there are all these scenes where you're seeing Fay Ray's character in front of stuff happening with either just King Kong or like King Kong finding a dinosaur. And you're like, how are they doing this? How is she in front of that? And I know that that's stop motion. And it's because they were projecting it on a screen behind her. And they invented some new technology to do it. It looks super cool. And they petitioned to have the Academy give them a special award for special effects. But the Academy said no, <laughs> which is misstep. crazy because it was a misstep. It looks awesome. But generally, what were your thoughts about the movie? Yeah. So I was torn about this one when we were doing our matchup just because obviously cultural significance, huge, mm-hmm. both from a advancing special effects perspective, but also just like a King Kong. There's like a million King Kong movies now. He's an iconic 
film it's gotta be character. one of the most famous film characters of all time yes and you hear about all these you know like spielbergy peter jackson-esque generation of directors being like i was so inspired by this film and so you're like we gotta keep it it's in the film canon mm-hmm. it's an important film i did like the structure of it i like the idea that's just this director being like i'm gonna make a movie <laughs> like, yeah and he's a director who's known for just going to wild places and filming the wild animals, animals or the, yeah. wild, the wilderness in these places which is a fascinating type of director yes and i so i think it's a fun setup and they get into it pretty quickly this movie also is not very long bless it so it clips along <laughs> It is really, you know, as we say these days, problematic in its depiction of the people they meet on the island. I think there is, again, some misogynistic elements of this film. And then my overwhelming feeling was like, oh, my God, these white people, they go to this place. They're seeing dinosaurs, which are extinct everywhere else, and just killing them. And then they bring this giant ape, which may be the last of its species. And then at the end, they're just like, oh, it's such a shame that beauty killed the beast. And it's like, no, yeah, you, you brought killed an animal the out of its habitat <laughs> and exhibited it and murdered it. And now it's extinct. <laughs> yeah, it's really bad. <laughs> Them killing all these animals is so horrible. <laughs> It's like, movie's not taking any time to acknowledge the role of this director in doing this so he can make money. And I was like, this is horrible. It's horrible. Yeah. And then they blame the poor ape. He didn't ask for any of this. And the woman. (laughs) The whole thing with how dangerous beautiful women are is is its own troubling (laughs) part of this. Yeah, there's this interesting romance with her and one of the guys on the ship where like, I think he's trying to flirt with her, but all he ever he's does is nagging her really hard. <laughs> he's nagging her constantly. He's the first mate or whatever of the ship and he doesn't want women on the ship, which is a typical sailor thing. Women mm-hmm. are supposedly bad luck on ships, but he keeps talking to her about how troubling women are how they get in the way how they don't belong here how she can't help it that she's in everyone's way and she's so annoying because she's a woman and it's just how women are (laughs) and you're like why are you talking like this (laughs) and she falls in love with him and you're like oh boy how did that happen yeah he says you're all right but women just can't help being a bother made that way i guess (laughs) damn I assumed he was gay, but I guess he was in love with this woman. <laughs> I think he was nagging her. I think he had read yeah. The Game or whatever that book is. And Yep. He's a, a pickup artist. <laughs> <laughs> there were some hilarious little bits of this. They kept putting exposition in dialogue, and there's a moment when they're pulling up to the island, and one of them is like, how will we know it's the right island? And another one says, the mountain that looks like a skull. And then she says, oh, yes, I'd forgotten you told me. Skull Mountain. <laughs> Listen, they're they're doing it efficiently. They're clipping along, okay? I loved it. That was hilarious. I also think Faye Ray's hand acting is hilarious <laughs> fantastic i love when they're shooting the test piece of film and he's like okay now now look up and pretend you're scared and you see something and you don't expect to see it and now you're terrified and blah blah blah. and she's pretending to do all of that and her hands by her face are just like oh, oh. and you're like what what is this Faye ray it's it's fascinating 
I liked her. I mean, she's putting yeah. in the effort too. She does spend most of this movie just screaming, but so much time screaming. It's she's crazy. putting in the effort. Yeah. I thought all of the times that they have Kong interact with her, it looks really Oh, great. when he's holding her? Yeah. Yeah. It's well, but the transitional moments are where it's really hard. It's not hard to have her be in the hand because they just built a giant hand, but there are moments where he picks her up or puts her down, and you're like, how have we done this? <laughs> it's incredible that they've done this. You can see that it changes to being a model that it's holding, but it's still, mm-hmm. I think it's really well done. I think all of the special effects are just, it's it's incredible. Yeah. So this is like, for me, a, a technical achievement put through. Beautiful matte paintings, too, for oh, their backgrounds. Yeah. All the jungle scenes look awesome. And that's really all good. just painted art. Yeah, but there are elements of the story where you're like, ooh, bad. Yeah, definitely. They also hilariously kept coming upon dinosaurs that are like herbivores. <laughs> Mostly they met herbivores who then tried to murder them some, for some reason. <laughs> They do get their dinosaurs a little bit wrong. Also, like, again, I don't know that the people are as in awe as you would expect someone to be who's seen If I came across a dinosaur. <laughs> I mean, is the implication that they don't even really know what they are? Did people Maybe. at this time not really know what dinosaurs were? And they were, they were like, like, oh, it's just a big lizard, this, I guess. This is a thing that lives in the South Pacific. Yeah. <laughs> Probably these <Maybe>. things everywhere. <laughs> God, we got to get rid of it. Exterminate this shit. They're overrun with stegosauruses. Yeah. <laughs> Also very pre-code. There's all sorts of stuff happening yeah. in this. King Kong starts taking off Fay Ray's clothes and she's showing a lot of skin for mm-hmm. a 1933 movie. I, there were really cool shots too. I liked when they were in New York and he's gotten loose and they show everybody running and so they're on the street and you just see the legs of everyone yeah. in the crowd running. That was super cool. That's awesome. Oh, and the rear projection scene when you're people are in the apartment building and you're seeing King Kong on the outside. Oh yeah, and he's reaching super through. super cool. Yeah. But it also... Reminded me of, and I'm sure they did it the same way, the Wizard of Oz scene with the twister where you're looking through the window and all the stuff oh, happening outside. Yeah. And I was like, oh, look at that. That's where they got that. <laughs> it's so cool. But uh, yeah, Beauty didn't kill the beast. These these people. These people yeah. killed. This the director, eight. really. The director did it. Yeah. It's pretty, it's pretty upsetting. But a technical marvel. A technical achievement. A technical marvel. Incredible to look at, short, so not a difficult watch, and definitely worth seeing for the film history's sake. Mm-hmm. All right. Our other double yes is The Private Life of Henry VIII. What a movie. Everyone knows this. King Henry VIII, he had six wives. They skip over the first one entirely. We come in right as Anne Boleyn is about to be beheaded. And then Henry is at the same time about to marry his third wife, Jane Seymour. Meanwhile, his fifth wife, Catherine Howard, is around. She's working at the palace. She catches his attention pretty early on in the film. And the movie just continues through his wife. So All the wives. Jane Seymour dies in childbirth. He then waits a little while. Then he marries his fourth wife, Anne of Cleves, who is a German woman who arrives. And he decides he's not attracted to her. So they end up just becoming friends. They get a divorce. He then marries that fifth wife, Catherine Howard. But mm-hmm. she's having an affair. So he has to behead her. And he's real upset about it. He yeah, feels so poor guy. Bad. <laughs> so sad and then his fourth wife Anna Cleves is like I think you should get remarried you really need a woman around here and she's like you should marry that woman and he ends up marrying his sixth wife Catherine Parr who then is taking care of him in his old age and the film ends with like women am I right can't live with them can't live without <laughs> yeah the, the overarching theme of it is 
this poor guy just can't find the right wife. <laughs> and you're like, how is that the moral of this story? It's so crazy. And if we haven't said, which we said in the last episode, but it's pretty much a comedy. Yes. <laughs> a lot of it is played for laughs, which is absolutely wild. I've never <laughs> An seen interesting anyone choice. treat this era of history or anything this like pretty serious as a comedy. But I really do think that is why I wanted to put it through the next round. It's so interesting. It's a weird choice. If it had just been like a dry historical drama, but with the same weird wrong things about history, I would not have enjoyed it nearly as much. What a weird movie this is. It's a strange film. So Charles Lawton won Best Actor for this role he plays, Henry VIII. His physicality in this performance is interesting. It's fascinating. I loved it. So when you first see him, he looks like that famous portrait of Henry VIII in his like robes and finery. Yeah. And the way that Henry is standing in that portrait is with his legs sort of wide and his his feet out to the side. And Charles Lawton chooses to walk like that through most he, of the He's like, film. that's just what Henry VIII looked like. Like <laughs> yes. arms akimbo and legs <laughs> wide, wide and in like a power stance. <laughs> but he's he's like waddling. <laughs> It's so bizarre. It's fascinating. <laughs> when I first, when we first encountered Charles Lawton, I was like, this is pretty goofy. Like he's stomping <laughs> around doing these crazy gesticulations. And I don't think I really got that it was going to be funny at this point. So mm-hmm. I was like, this is a weird portrayal of him. But then by the end, I was like, I like this performance. <laughs> it's crazy. <laughs> but it's it's pretty fun. The walking around in that crazy stance is a big part of like, what is going on? <laughs> yeah. That's just what you thought he was like. I love that take. But it's just so interesting that they have chosen that as the take. Like, why couldn't he make it work with any of these women? Oh, it's mm-hmm. such a shame that all of them kept having affairs. And even within it, one of the wives, the one who is. It's Catherine Howard. Yeah, they're the pointed scene. Yeah, there's a scene where she, I think I might have even written down. Oh, yeah. So she's with the guy who works for him, who Mm -hmm. the guy who works for him is hip to this whole thing. He's like, this fucking guy should not get married anymore (laughs) because clearly it is a bad idea. It's Robert Donat, Mr. Chips himself. Yeah. Catherine is like, no, it was the wife's fault. The right woman could still make him happy. And he says, every woman thinks herself the right wife for every other woman's husband. (laughs) So you're like, that's very interesting. And then she does eventually think that she could be the one to marry him and does. And it's a terrible decision. It's just a terrible decision. She gets beheaded. The scene with Anne of Cleves. I mean, all of Anne of Cleves I thought was pretty delightful. Her whole thing is... She doesn't want to marry him because of his history. So she decides when she comes to meet him. At first, she's putting it off. And then finally, she comes to meet him. Mm-hmm. And she decides to just make herself look crazy so that he will not be attracted to her. So she's doing silly faces. And she's walking strangely <laughs> just to put him off. And it totally works because in that first scene, he's like, oh, what is this horrible woman that they've sent to me? And so then when they have their wedding night, she just sort of successfully pretends to be totally naive to what's supposed to happen. And he goes in ready to be like, oh, I can't believe I have to sleep with this horrible woman. And then she is like, I don't, what's supposed to happen tonight? My mother didn't tell me anything about what's going on. He's like, no one told you anything. And so they end up just playing cards, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, in their marriage bed for the evening. And 
he thinks he's the best card player in the world because he's she's hustling him (laughs) she hustles him and then in the middle of this evening he has to come out to yell to his servants that he needs them to bring him money because he's lost so much money to her (laughs) and he needs them to bring more and i was like this is pretty delightful. I mean, I don't understand what it's doing in here, but it was fun. <laughs> yeah. The other comedy scene that I really liked in this movie is, I think around the time he marries Anne of Cleves, he's sneaking up to see Catherine Howard and he's like, yes. don't worry. I'm I, I'm going to be discreet. No one will know I'm coming. But as he's walking through the castle, all of his heralds are constantly announcing it. <laughs> and he's like running away from them and it's, it's pretty good. He's like shushing them. It's hilarious. Like a king could ever wander around in his castle without them knowing where he was. It was or really like it funny. matters. <laughs> Truly, like what he's going to get in trouble. I, the point is, she doesn't want her reputation yeah. to be besmirched. And so he's like, don't worry about it. Nobody's going to know. <laughs> Just crazy. There were little funny comedy beats. There's a scene in this when he has a whole chicken and he punches the back of the chicken to break the bones and then it just splatters the faces of all of his court around him. And And he's like taking bites and then just throwing the whole piece of the back and hitting a guy who's standing, like a herald who's standing behind him in the face with the chicken. It's really goofy, but pretty funny. (laughs) There's funny stuff. And I, I didn't understand why they made it funny. But I guess we should talk about the yeah. historical thing. So the first note is don't come into this film hoping to learn really anything about the actual Henry VIII. Like the, Absolutely he did not. have six wives. The overall yeah. beats are correct, but none of the details are correct. So Absolutely. don't expect to walk away with this with an understanding of the actual Henry VIII. No. But that leads to what you're going to talk about, which I didn't know, and is very interesting. Yeah, so they attempted, I guess, even though it is a goofy comedy (laughs) for whatever reason, they attempted to use it to make some parallels to modern politics. So there are parts where they talk about they talk about Germany actually a lot in this. This is obviously post World War One. The Treaty of Versailles has happened. Mm -hmm. Everybody knows the Treaty of Versailles was really harsh on its treatment of Germany and. Some attribute that to part of the reason that World War II happened because there was severe austerity and stuff in the country and, you know, dictators rise, yada, yada, yada. So the people in Britain, I guess, particularly considered the Treaty of Versailles to be really harsh. And so they had kept trying to get revisions to it to try to help Germany out a little bit without making them continue to try to take over Europe as they had been doing before. And so there's this monologue in the movie where Henry warns the French and Germans that they will destroy Europe because of their mutual hatred. And he says that it's his duty to save the peace. So the idea is probably that England themselves viewed it as their duty to keep the peace in Europe. They say the film possibly refers to the 1932 World Disarmament Conference, which I didn't even really know that was a thing, because there's the conflict about arming the country. And they have in the movie, Thomas Cromwell says that Spending on the Navy will cost too much money, and Henry says not spending on the Navy will cost us England. So it's about not wanting to disarm, keeping their military. It's a lot of parallels like that. And also, people had been calling for disarmament because it was also the Great Depression, (laughs) and the government needed to cut down on spending. And, And this was a statement of like, I guess we shouldn't be cutting on spending for the military. We should cut elsewhere. And it was also just the idea of... Britain wanting to reclaim their place, especially in 
Hollywood. I guess by this time, Hollywood had pretty much taken over the film industry. And so only like 5% of movies were British or something like that. Mm -hmm. And so it was also them trying to reclaim their space, which is interesting because Cavalcade is the movie that won this year, which is the most British. (laughs) But they were like, you know, we're British. We're cool. We're supposed to be in charge of the world as we have been for the last several centuries. So listen to us which is funny because they did it in the goofiest possible way why would anyone want to listen to this version of the king henry the eighth character i don't know i don't know but it's another one that's attempting to do some political Political commentary commentary exactly which i didn't get because you know what do i know about the politics of europe in 1933 and it's just it's Buried under the goofiest. It's a little hard to key in when you're like, what is happening? I don't know why it's so goofy. Occasionally, I was able to be like, well, it's really funny. I don't know why this is happening, but this is funny. And then I would go back to being like, but why is it about this? (laughs) And, you know, depending on your level of understanding of the actual Henry, it's just distracted by like, that didn't happen then. And they weren't there yet. And the thing with his the wife who's sort of around for most of it, Catherine Howard, is... There's some historical debate, but she didn't actually join the court until Anna Cleves. She was a lady in waiting for her. And she was mm-hmm. maybe between the ages of 16 and 20 when she married Henry. Seriously? Yeah. She's like the opposite of how they presented her. <laughs> yeah, as like the most adult. But also, there was no way she could have been there four years earlier with Jane Seymour if she was 16 when she married Henry. Although I think it, they're now leaning to she was a, bit, a little bit older. There's just a lot of stuff invented for this film. But it's interesting. <laughs> it is interesting. Good? I don't know. I think just the choice to make it a comedy is the most interesting thing about it. I don't know why that happened. And it it truly ends on Henry to camera being like, women can't live with them, can't live without them. Am I right, guys? And you're like, what? Like, he's the main character in a sitcom about a husband who's put upon by his nagging wife. Yes. (laughs) Okay. The life of Henry VIII. So I think this brings us to our yes, no, state fair. State fair is a movie about a family of farmers and their trip to the annual state fair. So we have our father figure, who is Bill Rogers, who has Mm -hmm. this beloved hog that he's entering in competition. Blue boy. Blue boy at the state fair. So he dotes on this hog. Everything, this hog needs to have the best food and the best care and the best treatment. And at one point he's using his wife's hairbrush on the hog. That is his (laughs) treatment of the hog. And then we have the mother who is entering her own cooking. She has mincemeat and pickles going into competition at the fair. And then we have their two children, a boy and a girl who seem like teenagers, I guess. Teenagers Um, to like early 20s. Yeah. They're in their late teens, I would say. They're both supposed to be getting married soon. And they each have someone that is their intended back home. They go off to the fair. And so we've got a few different romance is running through it. Each of the children end up meeting someone at the fair. The son meets a woman who turns out to be an acrobat in the... The fair is also like a circus kind of. There's a lot going on. They have shows. Yeah. So he has this romance with her and he thinks he's fallen deeply in love with her. But of course, she's like... She's got a man in every port. I gotta move on to the next town, buddy. And then we have the daughter who meets a guy who's a journalist and the two of them have this whirlwind romance and by the end he wants to marry her and she is not sure if she should leave her solid life with this farmer guy who's in love with her to go live this cosmopolitan lifestyle he wants to live and so at first she rejects him but then by the end he 
comes back and the two of them do get together. And the third romance is between a hog and a sow. Yep. (laughs) Blue boy falls in love with a beautiful sow. Yes. When the father arrives with the hog, who is was doing perfectly fine when they left their house, all of a sudden the hog is depressed. And he won't get up. He's laying down. He's just sleeping through the fair. And the father can't figure out what's wrong with him. And then a beautiful sow shows up and is staying in a a nearby pen. And all of a sudden, Blue Boy's fine again. He gets up. He's doing his little pig noises. (laughs) The dad's like, okay, I guess you're cool now. And then as we get to the time when it's the final competition, Blue Boy has already won his you know, best in class or whatever. And it's time for best in show. So it's just him and one more hog against each other. And right before he's supposed to go on, the sow that he's in love with leaves to go to her own contest. And now Blue Boy is distraught again. (laughs) And then luckily she ends up showing up just in time and Blue Boy does win. And the mother also wins in her pickle and mincemeat competitions, though there's some question, I think, if the the, journalists rigged it. (laughs) So that's not great, but she does get to be in the paper. So that's very exciting for her. Mm-hmm. And it's a whirlwind time at the fair. They come back. Mm-hmm. They had a great time. Yeah. And the son, I guess, gets over the fact that the acrobat left him and he's going to be with the girl that he was with in the first place. Yeah. That's state fair. It is. So I said, no, I wouldn't have imagined this one. You said yes. I'm marginal on it, though. Yeah. I think I, I think it just really exceeded my expectations because yes. I went into this movie being like, oh my gosh, this is going to be so boring. I think I was expecting it to also just be like, oh, look at all the stuff at the state fair, you know, and we just go around and we see all the things that are happening at the state fair. But I found that I liked the little love stories. I thought the entire family was very likable. I think the inclusion of the love story for the pig was so silly, but I really did love it. I loved the love story with the pig because they'd introduced both love stories for the kids. And then there's something going on with the pig and you're like, what is this? And then as soon as the dad is like, oh, another sow's coming. I was like, there's going to be a love story for the pig. (laughs) I loved it. (laughs) It's very silly. And yeah, so... This is another movie where it really shows the pre-code because it's so evident that he sleeps obviously out of wedlock with this acrobat. Like she yeah. she takes off all her clothes in the room with him and it's like, oh, they've started having sex and now he's very in love with her. And this is also another film similar to A Farewell to Arms, which we talked about in the last episode, where she's like, if I knew you were a virgin, I would not have done this because now you're yeah. like way too now attached you're to me. obsessed with me. That's <laughs> and I not can't great. be having this. And yeah, and I like the the story with the daughter and the journalist again i thought it was you know obviously everyone's falling in love pretty quick because it's a a week at the fair but i thought the relationship was sweet and their sort of discussion about like can i live in your world would you be happy in my world i thought it was nicely done i liked both of the parents mill rogers is great in this i did not quite understand how the journalist rigged the mincemeat and pickles competition yeah it was so unclear (laughs) and that's what made it strange because there's a scene where she the daughter's like okay i gotta go off to watch my mom get judged because she's really excited about this mincemeat and pickles competition and he's like oh can I come? And she's like, I don't really want you to meet my parents. (laughs) So let's meet after. And so he's like, okay. And then there's a scene in between where he's talking to a judge, I guess, right Mm -hmm. before it happens. But the entire scene is the, the judge being like, what's her name? And him being like, this is her name and saying the mom's name. And that's the scene. And so you don't see if that's what's happened, but then she does win both the pickles and the mincemeat. But also yeah. the guy seems to truly love her mincemeat because he's getting well, drunk Well, it's full of it. bourbon. So he's really excited about <laughs> Or brandy. That. Yeah, it's apple brandy. brandy. So you're just sort of like, how am I supposed to feel about this? <laughs> I guess it's fine. It's only a state fair, really. Who cares? <laughs> 
And then, yeah, I thought it was, you know, realistic that the relationship between the acrobat and the son didn't work out. I wouldn't have minded if both relationships hadn't worked out. That would have felt maybe a little bit more real to me. But I also don't mind that it did. And it also would have been kind of interesting for them to have gone and had this whirlwind state fair. And it's like, was that even real? (laughs) We all came back and had this crazy time. And now we're back to our normal lives. But I feel like it's fine that they got together at the end, too. Why, Why were you marginal on the yes side? I did definitely enjoy it more than I expected to, just as you did. And Will Rogers is delightful. We need more Will Rogers in our lives. It's a shame that he dies two years later. I think part of my issue was I did like the structure of it. I liked there were various romances, including the pig romance. That was fantastic. (laughs) My problem mainly with the girls romance was I didn't like either of the guys. I do think Mm -hmm. the end of the relationship with the journalist was more interesting. I liked him proposing and her not being sure and the reasons that they each had and like how they were going to work it out made sense to me. But the way that it's structured is she is with this guy on the farm who she's, I guess, supposed to marry. They've been intended to each other for years but he's just sort of assuming that they're going to get married even though he hasn't asked her. And so there's this scene where she's like, don't I get any say in it? And he's like, yeah, sure. But you know, it's really the man's job to decide. And so you're set up with like, okay, we hate this guy. (laughs) Great. Moving along. And then she goes to the fair. She's wandering around on her own because her brother's supposed to be chaperoning her, but instead he's already in the thrall of the acrobat lady. And so she gets onto a roller coaster and she's by herself and she gets seated with this other, you know, like a cute single guy. And I was like, oh, hell yeah. Like this is happening. It's time for the meet cute. We're going to have the romance with the guy. And then I just did not like anything that happened on that roller coaster. She is afraid (laughs) because I would be afraid too, by the way. There are no seatbelts on this roller coaster. And there's a sign that says, do not stand up. (laughs) What's going to happen on this roller coaster? Roller coaster technology has advanced since 1930. So she's terrified. And he does the most, you know, he's clutching her to him. Like, I'll take care of you, little honey, on the roller coaster. And I just. Their, their meat cute took some of the joy out of it for mm. me. I did enjoy as it went along. I thought it was really interesting. They have this alternate thing going on where the son keeps wanting to introduce his woman to the family and she says no. And then the journalist wants to meet her family and the daughter says no. But then there's a scene where she wants to go meet the journalist's friends. He has to tell her that he can't bring her to meet the people at the paper basically because he's a slut. Like... <laughs> It's like, everybody that I work with has met so many women on my arm. And if I bring you to them, they'll just think of you as another woman who's been dating me. And it won't be good for you. And I was just like, this is hilarious. Yeah, (laughs) I love that they're having this conversation. And then she has to be like, oh, like, this is really something for me to think about. Yeah, I don't disagree with you that the the meet cute was not as good. But yeah, I think the second part of their relationship was really interesting. And something you're not going to get postcode. You're not going to no. get this movie at all postcode. Oh, really. absolutely not. Which is a surprise for a movie called State Fair that is literally just about some people going to a state fair. <laughs> yeah. It's racy. <laughs> it was way more fun than I thought. I think my problem was just it is just a romance, basically. And so, I mean, there's not a lot happening with the son and his acrobat. So you're like, that's fine. But then her thing, I just wish it had been more successful for me from the mm-hmm. start. The pig romance works perfectly. A hundred percent. No notes. <laughs> Perfect pig romance. 
And I thought the chemistry between the parents was fun. Yeah. I loved the early scenes where Will Rogers is trying to convince her to put apple brandy in the mincemeat. Well, this is what happens with the mincemeat. Okay. Yeah. So the recipe calls for brandy and the wife is like, I'm not going to put alcohol in my cooking. We're mm-hmm. not going to do this. No. And so Will Rogers sneaks some brandy into the mincemeat because he's like, I got to help her out. There's got to be brandy. It's not going to work without the brandy. And then the wife has second thoughts and she pours the rest of the bottle of brandy. (laughs) They don't measure. They just pour like a whole bottle of brandy into this mincemeat. And then later the the newspaper reports that the judge was totally drunk (laughs) from eating this mincemeat because it's not cooked off. The brandy is the last step. Yeah. And then the it's funny because the wife is like, oh... I have to confess something to you to the husband. There was brandy in my mincemeat. And he's like, how'd you find out? (laughs) (laughs) They were delightful. Yeah. And then at the Um, end of the fair, they go off on a date together, just traveling through the fair. And you're like, this is nice. It was nice. I loved the parents. It was a fun time. And then then with with the parallels, when they leave... Uh-huh. All of the kids are crying. The son is crying. The daughter is crying. And Blue Boy is depressed again. So everyone in the back of the truck is like so sad. That was hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and then there's this running thing. Or I guess like a thing that comes back. Because at the beginning, the father has made a bet with a friend of his that I, that Blue Boy will win and that everything will go well. And the guy's like, you shouldn't want Blue Boy to win because if something good happens, then it'll be countered by something bad. So if Blue Boy mm-hmm. wins, then, you know, probably you'll crash your car or whatever. Like something terrible will happen. And so then at the end, Blue Boy has won and the mom has won both of her things. And so they're like, it was great. Everything went perfectly. You owe me my $5. And the guy's like, maybe something bad happened that we just don't know about. And at the time, both the kids are still so depressed. (laughs) So then he starts asking them, how was your time at the fair? And the girl is about to be like, it was horrible. But then she gets a phone call from the guy. And then she's running out to go meet him because he's coming back for her. And she's like, I had the best time of my (laughs) life. (laughs) It was cute. It was cute as hell. I liked it a lot. It's a nice story. And again, just I think part of my not mad is it so far exceeded my expectations. I was so ready to see just a super boring movie about a group of farmers going to the state fair. I think that's fair enough. And I it was definitely better than you would think from a movie called State Fair. (laughs) And racier than you would think. It was way racier, but thank you, (laughs) pre-code. Okay, so this brings us to our double yeses. 42nd Street, I'm a Fugitive from a Chain Gang, and Lady for a Day. Should we do the same thing where we go lowest seed to highest seed? Why not? Okay, so that brings us to I Am a Fugitive from a Chain Gang, a film with a very evocative title. (laughs) It's really telling you a lot about what's happening in the movie right there in the title. So this movie is about a guy. He's returning from World War I. The war has changed him. Yeah, as war does. He doesn't want to go back to his job at the factory. He gets back to town and his former boss is like, I've held your job for you. And he's like, I can't be locked in to this factory all day processing invoices. He just seems to be doing paperwork. Yeah. He wants to do construction work. He was in the engineering corps in the army and he fell in love with it. And his family at first is not very supportive, but then his mom is like, follow your dreams, son. Yep. And he has a very hard time finding a steady engineering or construction job. He is basically traveling the country, going from job to job, short term. And he ends up pretty destitute. He meets a guy in a boarding house who's like, hey, I know a place where we can get a free hamburger. And Paul Muni's character is like, 
yes, please. I would love a hamburger so much. And so they go to this dining car to get a hamburger and the guy he's with decides to rob the owner at gunpoint and he forces Paul Muni at gunpoint to help him. The first guy is shot by the police. The police show up and Paul Muni is captured and he's sentenced to 10 years or some amount of years. I think it's 10 years. 10 years hard labor in a chain gang. So he joins this chain gang and it's horrible as you might imagine. But he figures out an escape with the help of another prisoner who bends his shackles. He's able to get away and he makes his way up to Chicago where he does finally get a steady construction job and he works his way up in the company to become one of the the best citizens in Chicago, one of (laughs) Chicago's leading men. Meanwhile, when he first gets that job in Chicago, he takes a room at a boarding house with a woman who decides she's really got her eye on him. She intercepts his mail at one point and learns that he is a fugitive from a chain gang and blackmails him into marrying her. They have a horrible marriage, as you might imagine, from that setup. He eventually falls in love with another woman. He's like, can you please just divorce me? I promise I will continue to support your lifestyle. And she's like, no. And she reveals that he is this person who escaped from the chain gang. His lawyer's like, don't worry, we're not going to send you back to Georgia. And the people from Georgia are like, don't worry. You'll serve out 90 days. We'll get you a cushy job within the prison system. Then we'll pardon you and you can come back up, be a free man. And his lawyer is like, do not listen to these people. You just just stay here. But he decides that he wants to be a truly free man. And so he goes back and surprise, surprise, they lied. (laughs) (laughs) So they put him back onto a chain gang and they're like, oh, we'll pardon you after a year. And then they don't do that. And he's going to have to be on a chain gang indefinitely. Who's to say? And so he and another prisoner who had been on the first chain gang with him escape again. The other guy ends up dying, but he makes it out. A year later, he comes back up to Chicago to meet the woman he'd fallen in love with just to say goodbye that they can't be together because he's going to be on the run for the rest of his life. And she's like, do you need any money how do you live and he's like i steal they've turned him into the criminal that he never was fades into the blackness (laughs) never to be seen again yeah how'd you feel about this paul muni picture i loved it i thought it was great paul muni was fun i hadn't seen him in anything before Mm -hmm. and i just thought it was really making some interesting statements and i know a lot of that is because it is based on a book by a guy that this really happened to. And then Paul Muni and the guys who made it did a lot of research. And Paul Muni wanted to talk to all these people who had really been on chain gangs. So there was a lot of that. And the public had a visceral reaction to this. This movie is credited with a lot of the reason why chain gangs ceased to exist, yeah. which is cool. Also, it's interesting because it's making a statement about his treatment post-war and coming back as a veteran and how he was mistreated. But then it also is paralleled to everyone's experience of the Great Depression because it's him wandering around the country unable to find work and getting a couple days work here and there and all of that. So it's just very of the moment, but also saying interesting political things and social things. And uh, I thought it was quite effective. That chain gang seemed like real bullshit. (laughs) It seemed like a bad time. A real bad time. What did you think of it? I loved this movie. I agree. There's some really interesting commentary about the prison system. There's some things about the filmmaking I loved, which we can talk about too. But 
there are actually a number of movies this year where there are black people in the films. There's Interesting a couple... how that also got cut out during the code. <laughs> yeah. There's a couple where there's maids, which is not great. We talked yeah. about King Kong. The natives yeah. appear to be black. But there's a number of other black guys on the chain gang. And there's some real camaraderie between the prisoners within this, this movie. And I think there's also some, like, again, I don't know how much of this is intentional, but there's a scene where they're first showing the guy, Sebastian, who ends up helping him escape. And one of the other prisoners says, they like his work so much, they're going to keep him here for the rest of his life. And I'm like, "Mm, interesting, interesting, like prison is the new (laughs) slavery situation commentary. And then once he's up in Chicago, there's also this bit where, you know, they show newspaper headlines throughout this movie. And there's this little headline about the date he escaped from complaining about states' rights, how they won't extradite him back. And I'm like, this is exactly the conversation that was happening pre-Civil War, right? Southern states were like, northern states, you need to send back our slaves. You're not recognizing your state's rights. And the North were like, you're not recognizing our right to not do that. Like, you're trying to get the federal government to make us send people back. And we as sovereign states don't want to do that. There's some very interesting parallels, though, drawing between the Mm -hmm. system and slavery that seems purposeful sure i thought the symbolism of him blowing up the bridge during his final escape was really interesting because all he wants to do is build bridges and when everything's falling apart he destroys a bridge and i thought the ending with him coming into the shadows and being like i steal was haunting it's so good what a great fucking ending the criminal justice system has turned him into a criminal yeah come on Good. So yeah, and then there were just some shots. I like there's the scene where he's escaped and he's hiding from the bloodhounds under the water and he's using a reed to breathe. And there's a shot from underwater where you see the guard standing a few feet from him. That was was so cool. I wrote that down myself. It's an awesome shot. I like some of the transitions. So when he's in Chicago, they show him advancing through his employment cards and you can see the year and his new job and how much he's getting paid. His wife sucks. Yeah, that woman was terrible. It's interesting because he meets her when he's looking for a new room and she owns the house that he rents it from. And she's aggressively hitting on him during the meeting when he's going to rent the room. And I was like, I hope you realize if you rent this room, you're going to have to sleep with this lady. But it got so much worse than that. Yeah. (laughs) That's a a real don't give a person an inch or they'll take a mile situation. Like you should have found a different room from the get go, buddy. Yeah, that was wild. Some interesting stuff. They didn't delve a ton into this. I think it's implied a lot at the beginning and then sort of falls out. But there's some PTSD conversation going on here Mm -hmm. when he first is getting back from the war. And I think in the real life guy's story, that's his PTSD is a lot of the reason why he was unable to find steady employment when he was moving around the country, which makes sense. That isn't really a part of this story. But I was really intrigued by the handling of him getting home from the war. And especially since it's World War One. Yes. All of these people really have no idea how to handle him or react to him or or relate to his experience in any way. And so he comes back from the war and they're all just like, this is exciting. Let's all sit down for some tea and you can tell us war stories. And I'm like, he is not going to want to talk about that. No. <laughs> like, you guys aren't getting this at all. And they're surprised that he feels he wants to change things about his life. And they think, you know, it'll be fine if you just go back to exactly how it was before. What I think his brother who i didn't realize was his brother me neither it took a long time i was like who is clint yeah because he's like a preacher or something so you assume he's just at the house because he's the neighborhood priest or whatever but he's actually his brother and his brother says to him when he has expressed 
not want, not wanting to go back to his job, his brother's like, you just need a good night's sleep and tomorrow you'll be ready to go back to the factory. A soldier of peace instead of a soldier of war. <laughs> and and the like, main guy's like, up, I don't want to be any kind of soldier. And also, a night's sleep is not going to fix me. World War One is the most horrible thing anyone could ever live through. So <laughs> I yeah. don't know what you're talking about. So I just thought that was interesting. I can't believe that that guy robbed the hamburger place where the guy gives out free hamburgers. No. Can you even believe that? What an idiot. I felt so bad for Paul, too, because he, he never got to eat his hamburger. Oh, he's still so hungry. <laughs> he never got the hamburger. But if you know a guy who owns a hamburger store and he's willing to give you a free hamburger every now and then, don't you think you would rob any other place? I mean, yeah, I, I would, but I don't know what's going on with that guy. He's a that loose cannon. <laughs> he was a loose cannon. But yeah, the chain gang, appropriately horrible. And and Southern states ended up suing them after this movie for yeah. their representation in it. Even though I think you're right. I'm not sure they actually say that it's Georgia. They don't say what state it is. But I think, um, you know, in the, the book it's based on, it's clearly Georgia. So they're like... People yeah. will know. People will like, know. Well, maybe no you shouldn't can have this know. chain yeah. gang. And the chain gang system because it's horrendously terrible. But the shot of him escape or the underwater th- scene when he's escaped, super awesome. Then he gets to the city after he's escaped the first time because he's going to meet like someone who used to be in the mm-hmm. prison who he knows is there. And he like goes to buy a suit and a hat and get cleaned up and he's getting a shave. And then Oh, that scene was great. <laughs> it's such a good scene full of tension where he's getting a shave and then a cop comes in off the street because he also, you know, wants to get some some barber work done. And so they're having this conversation and the cop brings up that they're looking for a fugitive and he starts describing him and how tall he is and his hair and all this. <laughs> He's getting more and more freaked out in the chair. And then he gets up to leave. And the barber, as he's walking out the door, says, "Was it, how was the shave? Close enough? And he goes, plenty. <laughs> he yeah. walks out the door. That was, a really, that was a really good scene. The tension in that scene was great. It was great. Yeah. I mean, everything with the woman that forces him to marry her is really rough. He really... I think it's interesting that she has literally blackmailed him into marrying her and he still thinks she's bluffing after all this time. Like eventually when he wants to break it off with her, he's like, what are you really going to do about it? And he decides he's going to get divorced and you're like, well, she's going to do exactly what she said she was going to do. He just can't. I mean, you know, there's there's this recurring theme of him being trapped. He just can't stay. He just goes from prison to prison. What he really shouldn't have done was trusted the prison system and gone back to Georgia. He should have listened to his lawyer and just hung out in Chicago. Well, and yeah, the problem is he and the woman that he wants to marry both are like trying to make the honorable decision. And like they They both want him to have a clear conscience and be completely free and clear. And they both agree like it'll be fine. What are they going to (laughs) lie? Yeah. Yeah, they are. They really just took them for their word. And that's. <sighs> you can't that's do a that. Bad choice. You just can't do that. But the scene when he comes back at the end to say goodbye to his love and oh. he tells her that he steals, I mean, that's an excellent ending. What an excellent it, it, ending. It gave me chills. It's so yeah. sad. But yeah. I thought it was great. You know, it's interesting. The middle of the last century is this time in America where trust in institutions was really high. And mm-hmm. I, you, you really, it makes you wonder how much of that is mass media not being able to say anything critical about American institutions, right? Like if this kind of movie had existed throughout the entire 20th century, mm-hmm. are we living in a totally different world? Yeah, if people could make movies like this in the 50s, then what, yeah. you know? 
Yeah. I don't know. It was good. I, I liked know. Paul Muni. Me too. I'm excited to see more of him. I think we will. Yep. It was great. We need more movies about this exact thing right now because our criminal mm-hmm. justice system is still super fucked. <laughs> so yeah. where is the I'm a fugitive from a chain gang of 2022? Give it to me. I love it. Okay. Should we move along to 42nd Street? Tell me about 42nd Street. 42nd Street is a musical drama, but I won't call it that because I know that you don't think it's a musical. <laughs> Where? Do you want to say why? Yeah. The, I agree with you. The definition of a musical is usually that when people start singing, they don't know that they're singing, really. The, mm-hmm. the singing is a part of the plot. It moves the story forward. It's like they live in an alternate universe where everybody sings. Yes. <laughs> this is not that. This is a movie about people who are putting on a stage musical And it happens to contain lots of musical numbers. And so it is about this director who's trying to put on one last show because he doesn't want to do it anymore, basically. He feels underappreciated. He's put on all these great shows and he's made all of these actors' careers. And what does he have to show for it? Also, a doctor told him if he gets too stressed out again, he'll die. (laughs) Exactly. So he's like, okay, I'm going to put on this last show and make money from it, and then I'm going to retire, and it's going to be great. So they have the actress that's going to be in it. She has this wealthy benefactor who's the one putting up the money for the play. She's going to be the star, and then they're casting it. It needs a huge cast of singers and dancers because it's a pretty traditional stage musical. So they're, yeah, they're doing rehearsals for it. This young ingenue woman who doesn't have any musical experience is one of the people who's auditioning for the show. She has sort of interesting chemistry with a couple of different guys. She meets one guy at the beginning who is slightly more advanced than her in terms of his experience, but he's still not a top dog, but he's a dancer and singer for the show. He is very taken with her. And then there's another guy who is the love interest of the main star of the play. The two Mm -hmm. of them had a double act together, I think on vaudeville back in the day. And she has since become very successful on Broadway and he has not as much, but they still are seeing each other and they just feel like they have to keep it a secret. But then he also meets the young woman who is auditioning for the play and they have, they're very pleasant together and they have their own little interesting chemistry going on and so we're going through we're rehearsing for the play it's very difficult exacting work because the director is very precise and then we finally are going to go to their doing like a pre-broadway staging of the show that was supposed to be in atlantic city but gets moved to philadelphia gas disappointing disappointing (laughs) and so they go to philadelphia they're putting on the show the main star woman hurts her ankle And she can't go on and they only have like four hours (laughs) before the show. And someone suggests our younger woman to take her place. And so the director goes in a room with her and runs through the entire show to figure out if she could do it. Because apparently she does have all of the music and all the dance numbers memorized, which is really impressive. And he comes out and he's like, we're doing it. They do the show. She's incredible in it. Everybody loves it. They're walking out of the previews and the director is there listening as everyone walking out is like, these fucking directors always pretend that they are responsible for this, but really it's just because the actors are good (laughs) and he's going to pretend that it's his his achievement, but really it was all her. And it's like, yeah, you didn't have anything to show from your efforts, director. Bummer for you. Mm -hmm. But that's the main strokes of 42nd Street. What did you think of it? 
I thought it was good. I was a little marginal on this one, even though I gave it a no, I would not have been mad. I think, mm-hmm. you know, apparently this sort of invented the behind the scenes, putting on a show type of story, which is cool. I thought all the character interrelationships inter- were pretty well done. I think this is a movie that you see referenced in other movies. Maybe also particularly the Coen's brothers movies. There's a couple of things in here. I'm like, that is in a Coen's movie. I think you're mostly thinking of Busby Berkeley's influence. But even earlier, there's a bit where they're going through a line where someone's saying things can never be the same now and they're doing it over and over again. I was like, this is very oh, that is like was so, so simple <laughs> from Hail Caesar. But yeah, there's the Busby Berkeley bit at the end where the camera's going through the dancer's legs that is referenced in Big Lebowski too. Mm-hmm. And all the stuff from above, the yeah. spinny an- women kaleidoscope. Right. Sort of. So you're seeing this and other things. The Busby Berkeley part is really cool. I liked when they put on the show and that was really fun to watch. I don't think I've seen much Busby Berkeley like, you know, in the actual films that it's taking place. Yeah, in. I think we've seen it referenced more than we've yeah. seen the real stuff. So that was awesome. I did think it was very funny that they were so upset that they had to go to Philadelphia instead of Atlantic City. That is a marker of the time. <laughs> Atlantic City used to be cool, y'all. It really did. Agreed. I also was somewhat marginal on it, but I did think that there was enough interesting stuff about it that I wouldn't have been mad that it won. In addition to inventing the behind the scenes thing, I think this, I don't know if we can revitalize this early in Hollywood, but this was the beginning of the trend of Hollywood loving musical, quote unquote, musical movies. Mm. It ushered in a whole era of that. The Busby Berkeley stuff is super cool. I actually enjoyed the romance relationship stuff. It it sets up like there's going to be this love triangle dramatic silliness happening where she's Mm -hmm. torn between these two men and it breaks up everything with the the star woman and it all ends up resolving itself fairly amicably because the the woman who was the star ends up coming the day of the musical and you think she's coming in to be like i can't believe you've stolen my part and you're you know somehow involved with my man and blah 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 and instead she comes in and is like i just wanted to wish you well make sure you're doing okay uh, you know all the numbers everything's fine and like pump her up a little bit before she goes on which was really nice then you're right the- what easily could have been like multiple love triangles the ingenue and the the love interest of the star they quickly just they're like we're friends right okay cool <laughs> Yeah, they're like super chill and it plays for a while like maybe they could get together, but really it's just they're friendly. And so then there's this scene where the older woman gets drunk at a party because she's broken it off with the guy and is really sad about it and knows that he's in Philadelphia. And so there's all of this nonsense. And she has she like seen the two of them interacting with each other? Is that part of why she's mad something sets that off because she she sort of calls him in to be mad at him and then the ingenue ends up having to knock on their door because she hears that they're about to come find him you know here along with her and and rough him up because they were trying to get him out of the picture so that the wealthy benefactor doesn't get mad and so she walks in and you expect it to be this whole drama but instead she's just sort of like they're coming. You've got to leave. And then everybody's getting to business and working together. <laughs> and it sort of was quite pleasant. I enjoyed all of their stuff. I thought that the scene when she and the boyfriend of the main actress met each other was actually pretty cute. They were both lovely together. And everybody's just sort of pleasant. Even the director, who's supposed to be this really abrasive guy, just wants to do good art and be nice for it. And 
Fair. Unfortunately, that's never going to happen for, <laughs> for him. No. That end musical number of 42nd Street was mm-hmm. awesome as hell. Yeah. I don't know if it's sort of being presented as if that's how they're doing it on a stage, but I don't know how that could possibly have been done on a stage. They're moving sets on and off and you're moving through parts of New York City and then we're going up into a building and down out of the building. <laughs> yeah, really no, I don't awesome. know if it makes sense as an actual stage musical, but uh, as a film, super good. As a film, super cool. And then like really dark stuff happens in that song. There's a part of the thing going on is this woman is being sexually assaulted by this guy and has to jump out of a window and onto the street and they're singing about a guy getting forced into a shotgun wedding and uh, like... Yeah. It's pre-code, it's baby. <laughs> it's really wild, the stuff that's happening. So it was pretty fun. I, it didn't, like, blow my socks off, but I yeah. enjoyed it. It was good. Yeah. Ready to talk about the number one seed, Lady for a Day? Lady for a Day. I sure am. Tell me okay. what happens in Lady for a Day. Lady for a Day is about a woman named Apple Annie. She is a poor woman who makes a living selling apples on the street. She had a daughter out of wedlock that she sent overseas to be raised in a convent, and she's been writing her back and forth and telling her in her letters that she is a a wealthy woman married to this guy. They live in this fancy hotel. It's not true. Mm. She gets a letter from her daughter informing her that she is engaged to the son of a count, a Spanish count, and that they are coming to America to come see her. And she is like, oh, my God, she's going to find out who I really am. I can't have this happen. She tells the people working at the hotel she's been pretending to live at to just tell her daughter that she died. And they won't do it because these hotel people suck. Yeah, they really do. They're no fun at all. Yeah. So her community rallies around her. There's a a gangster who thinks she's really lucky. So anytime he goes before he does a deal or like gambles on something, he has to get an apple from Apple Annie. And so all the other folks who sort of work on the streets come to him and they're like, we have to help her. We need to help Apple Annie. And so he agrees and they put her up in a different hotel. No, I think it's the same because he happens to he has a friend, a rich friend who owns an apartment in that hotel. And so he isn't going to be in town. So he just could like ask for a favor if they can use it. I think he tells the guy the scheme and the guy's like, that's hilarious. Yeah, let's do it. (laughs) Yeah. He's like, my only request is that nobody destroys the walls or whatever of the. Yeah. Yeah. And so they give Appalachian a makeover. There's a makeover scene in this movie. Oh, yeah, there is. <laughs> and then the daughter comes and, you know, they have to do the whole charade. So they have to find her a husband and they get this yep. guy who's a pool hustler to pretend to be her husband. And then the fiance and the, the count are like, oh, are we going to have a reception? They're like, yeah, we'll have a reception. <laughs> And so they have to get all of their gangster friends to pretend to be like the ambassador to Chile and the king of Siam. And so there are these great scenes where they're practicing being proper people. But the police start to get suspicious of all this activity. And so they start cracking down on on them, following also, them around. It's seeing what's meanwhile, going on. three different oh, yeah. society reporters have gone missing. <laughs> yes, they don't want any reporters getting to the Count or the Count's son. So the gangsters have been kidnapping the society reporters. And so as they're getting ready to do the reception, the police have them surrounded. The gangsters whose name is The Dude, tries to go and talk to the police. They arrest them for kidnapping the society reporters. But 
in the end, the dude is able to explain to like the governor and the mayor of the city what they're doing. And everyone decides they're just going to help Apollani out. And so instead of having all these gangsters come and pretend, the governor shows up and the mayor shows up and all these fancy people who are at a New Year's party anyway. And then the count and the daughter and the son leave, believing that Apollani is this, this lady and that's the end of the film. And the last couple scenes too are like the the heads of the newspapers telling the society reporters like, you weren't kidnapped. Everything's fine. <laughs> and it's like, it's pretty great. Yeah, I, I thought this feel. was a hell of a fun time. I really mm-hmm. enjoyed it. The setup is delightful. This is such a great idea for a movie. And then I really liked everybody in it. I loved Warren William who plays the dude, who I yeah. guess is the king of pre-code. Who knew? But he's delightful. And just like the wonderfulness of this friendship between this gambler guy and this poor woman who sells apples on the street was so delightful. And I, all of the scenes where he is all stressed out trying to get all of his criminal friends to act like high society folks. And he's just there like, no, like that is not how you bow. You have to do it like this. And he's, you can't pull like- at his hair. It's so funny. <laughs> gets so invested in it and he has this guy that works for him happy who thinks the whole thing is ridiculous there's some deal that he's trying to put together but the dude keeps putting it off because this is so much more important (laughs) happy's always like i can't believe this he like walks in on the scene when he's teaching all the criminal friends to be fancy and he (laughs) can't understand why this keeps happening it's interesting because I feel like especially in old movies, it's hard to tell how old people are. Mm-hmm. So I was convinced early on that when they needed a husband for her, somehow at the last minute, the dude was going to be forced to like step into the role of her husband. But it was even funnier that he was in the back of the scenes trying to orchestrate all of this insanity. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it was really difficult, but he was very persistent. He really wanted to get it done. And then, yeah, when he gets arrested by the cops and they don't want to hear his story, and then he ends up telling the story to the governor and the mayor and they're all on board. (laughs) I loved the ending. And I was like, wait, we're really just going to be fine with the fact that they kidnapped these three guys? And it was like, yeah, they answered that too. I love them being like, you weren't kidnapped. You were fine. Nothing happened. I think they even make them pretend that they were on a bender for three days. (laughs) (laughs) It was delightful. I had a great time. What did you think? I also, I love this movie. I thought the scenes with Apple Annie and her daughter were actually really touching. That actress did a great job in the scenes where they reconnect and she's so happy to see her. Yeah, I loved Happy. I also loved the dude's other assistant, Shakespeare, who is just like a prototypical himbo idiot hench person. He's so dumb, but so sweet. <laughs> loved Shakespeare. I love that there's a makeover scene in this movie. It's the Princess Diaries. It's Miss Congeniality. They get a whole team in to make her over. There is an implied gay guy who they're, they're like, that guy can't go in there. And they're like, he's fine. Don't worry. That, that was amazing. That was another one of the gay characters in movies <laughs> yeah. pre-code, which couldn't have existed later. But I loved he's about to walk in. And yeah, they literally are like, he can't go in there. It's fine. It's and fine. they're like, oh. <laughs> I thought all the the pool hustling scenes with the guy they get to pose as the, the husband judge, are fine. right? That's what he's called. Yeah, 
the judge. So you, they set up that he's a pool hustler. And then later in the movie, the oh, count is great. like, so we need to talk about the dowry. And he's like, what? And he's like, yeah, just like maybe 50 grand or something so the kids can get married. And he ends up talking him into playing a game of pool for the dowry. Yeah. And of course, he's hustling him. And then right at the end of the game, the phone is ringing. He has to run to get the phone. And he just quickly wins. And it's... yeah. It was so cool. He like hits his final shot, which is this crazy trick shot. He walks away without even seeing what happens because he knows that everything. (laughs) And the guy sticks his head and is like, you made it. And he's like, no way. way. (laughs) It was so fun. What a fun movie. Everybody banded together to help this lovely woman, Amy, to to lie, but in a nice way to her daughter. It's fantastic. I had the best time. Frank Capra. He's got he's got the touch. And then Frank Capra remade this movie a few decades later. And I think he claimed that he liked the remake better than the original, but the reviews didn't bear that out. So I think we probably watched the better version. It's apparently quite a bit longer. I will say I did read that Peter Falk is in it, though, playing, I think, the happy character. So, like, I might have to check it out. That is kind of fun. You know, this this version's great. So without having seen the other one, watch this one. It's real fun. Watch this one. And it's short. Everything's so short and great. I love that the dude's line whenever he's trying to tell people this story and get them on his side is, do you believe in fairy tales? He walks into the police station and is like, I have an explanation. Do you believe in fairy tales? And the police are like, no, but the governor's like, yeah, I do. Let's make this happen. (laughs) It's so good. What a great time. But yeah, there was something so funny to me about him Warren William in that scene where he's trying to he make everything work and he's like yeah. so stressed about it. That was really great. Well, it's also fun like the way he just gets deeper and deeper into the ruse because initially he doesn't want to do it. And no. then they're like, oh, we need to get her hotel room. He's like, okay. And then they're like, oh, we need to find her husband. And he's like, I guess. And then he's just like in too deep. And I guess he's also invested. And so he just keeps going along. Well, and he's been brought into it because when Oh, there's a great scene when the daughter and the count and the fiance all arrive on a boat and mm-hmm. they don't want anyone to get interviewed by the society reporters. So they just bring all of their gangster friends to form a circle around them so that no reporters can approach. And obviously the dude is there because he wants to make sure everything goes down appropriately. So then they're like, oh, who's this guy? And Annie's like, oh, this is your uncle. <laughs> like, yeah, he's the, he's the brother of my husband. And, and so then he becomes just this beloved uncle character to the daughter. So he needs right. it all to work out. Out. he can't betray her <laughs> no and that seems great too because the cops are also down at the docks and they're like something's going on the dude and all his gangsters are here and so the dude the maybe it's happy who tells another guy like you gotta punch this guy you gotta start a fight to distract he makes him the start cops. a fight with like his own brother to his distract brother. the cops yeah yeah it's a lot of fun i think there's also like a version of this movie where you're staying more on annie and the emotional relationship with her daughter which wouldn't be bad but it's it, seeing them keep this ruse going is so fun it's delightful but i think the movie it puts its attention in the right place which is the dude trying but to then the scenes with annie and her daughter still work but feel yeah, like they do. there's this nice balance between them and the hijinks of it it's good it's I quite it. good yep love you lady for a day What an interesting set of movies this was, Mm -hmm. 1933. Part of the joy of it was that so many of them felt so different from all of the rest. There are years as things go on where the Academy starts to decide this is what we like. So then you end up Mm -hmm. in a year where the movies feel very similar or they're all like war epics or Bible epics or whatever. And you're sort of like, 
we get it. This is what you're interested in. But this is so early that it's like a movie could be anything. <laughs> Who knows what a movie is? Maybe it's 60 minutes and it's just hijinks and no plot. Maybe <laughs> yeah. it's like, and so many of them felt like different experiences. And a little of that is seeing the seams of them not quite having figured out how to make movies yet. The, you know, weird edits and stuff and the strange structures. A lot of them start with cards, like paragraphs of information that feel like a holdover from silent films where the, a card comes up and it's like, this is what's going on in this movie. <laughs> and you're mm-hmm. like, okay, thank you for the introduction. It just felt like a sort of transitional moment for film in a cool way. I liked this. Even the ones that I didn't love, I still mostly found something interesting about all of these movies. Yeah, I agree. Although it is also interesting, right? They did not catch King Kong and Duck Soup, which are the two ones that apparently, you know, are the most important to come out of this year. But there's some real gems in here. Yeah. And the fact that they were all short was a healing balm to my soul. It felt like a sampler. (laughs) It was so great. I had a wonderful time. I told you, I accidentally left the two longest movies for the last two, and it it was punishing, and neither of them is even two hours. (laughs) And still, I was like, this is going to be hard to transition to the next year we do, where it's like, why are these movies taking forever? Yeah. What happened to the days of a 65 minute movie, guys? Which isn't even technically a feature length film anymore. Yeah. Okay. So that brings us to our conclusions. So, what do you think should have won? Gut decision. I am a fugitive from a chain gang. Mm -hmm. What do you think? I agree. So my top two are I'm a Fugitive from a Chain Gang and Lady for a Day. But I do think the social impact of I'm a Fugitive for a Chain Gang deserves recognition. It's a powerful film. And it feels like, you know, much as I love, love, love to see comedies nominated and I always want more comedies nominated, there is something about I'm a Fugitive from a Chain Gang that just feels more like an Oscar movie, right? Yes. And Paul Muni's so good. He's great. What a good movie. That said, I think the answer to this is clear. Did the Oscars get it wrong? Yes. Once again, we eliminated the winner in the first round. (laughs) Yeah. The winner sucked. The winner was the worst choice of all of them. What were you thinking, Academy Awards? Bad. If we had only 10, we would have asked, if this were a normal year with five nominees, are these the five you would choose? But we've ended up with six here. Mm -hmm. So I guess if we can pretend that a normal year had six nominees, are these the six of the 12 that you would have chosen? I probably, you know, we picked our best of the worst in the last episode, and my pick was smiling through for that. I probably would sub that in for Private Life of Henry VIII if, if we had to make an actual top six. But otherwise, I'm good with these. I'll say if we had to make a top five, I think we lose Private Life of Henry VIII, then these are the right five. Yes, I agree with that. Yeah. What a fun time this was at the movies. It is time to take a little walk, a meander over to Jake Gyllenhaal Corner and have a visit with Jake Gyllenhaal. Quite clearly, he was not alive in 1933, so he has no movies that should have been considered. But let's think about if there are any movies he would have been good in. I have an instinct on this. What are your thoughts? I feel like the obvious choice is Paul Muni's character in I'm a Fugitive from a JK. It's just like he's got so much to do. It's a total Oscar movie. It makes complete sense for you to be nominated for it. It's a great journey. There are levels to it. And I think Jake Gyllenhaal is kind of a Paul Muni type, if I'm being honest. 
But Jake would have crushed it. Although, you know, I don't want to take away Paul Muni's role. No, Paul Muni was great. But Jake also would have been great. If we remake I'm a Fugitive from a Chain Gang today. And I did just ask for us to remake I'm a Fugitive from a Chain Gang. Dream casting. Jake Jake Gyllenhaal. All right. Jake Gyllenhaal corner. Conclusions. Are you going to revisit any of these films? I mean, honestly, again, I probably would watch those top two again. Lady Corday was a delight, and I really appreciated I am a fugitive from a chain gang. Word. Couldn't agree more. So this is interesting. What have we learned? I think the Academy is still learning at this point in time. We're on the sixth Academy Awards. They don't really know yet what a best picture is. That's true, but they still lean towards scope. That's true. Cavalcade is very much an epic in terms of time period covered. Yeah. The other thing that they've done is, as we mentioned, right, they they miss King Kong, they miss Duck Soup. They're already rejecting genre. Yeah, what's their problem with genre? At least they have... There's some comedy. Some comedy, which is good. We like to have comedy. And then this is the early period of them bringing in musical stuff, which will come to dominate the Academy Awards for several decades. So I don't know. I don't know that we've learned anything particularly new. They love scope. They can't. And boring movies. That's what I'll say. (laughs) Scope and boredom. (laughs) Biopics. Interestingly, not a lot of that happening this year. Private Life of Henry VIII is biopic adjacent. I mean, yep. again, it's it's not at all accurate. Is right. that a biopic if you've made Hard up to all say. the details? And it's not really – yeah, if you made up all the details, who's to say? It's not like following him over the course of his life. It's a, it's a thing where no. they've chosen at least a period or at least a, like a part of his life to focus on. So that is a little bit different. But that I think is the closest we've got to a biopic. Mm-hmm. Original ideas. We've done the tally. It was not difficult because the number of original ideas in the nominees this year is zero. You can count to zero. You're there. Meanwhile, the two that were not nominated, King Kong and Duck Soup, both original ideas. What does it all Mm. mean? Again, my theory is the complaint about a lack of original ideas is more about blockbuster filmmaking than it ever was about prestige filmmaking. I think you're probably right. Yes, we've got short stories, we've got plays, we've got novels, we got true stories. <laughs> mm-hmm, 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 mm-hmm. Well, that was fun. I had a great time. 1933, I was, I was worried, but yeah. unfairly so, because it was a fun time. Maybe the earlier we get, the better it'll be. I mean, it's before Gone with the Wind was like, everything should be an epic, and you're like, this, this, is, a, this is a wrong move. Gone with the Wind really ruined everything. 65 to 110 minutes give me a sampling of different films there is some fun in them not knowing what they're doing yet of course it's fun that it's pre-code yeah i'm excited for more pre-code years or even 1934 which is transitional and you will get some pre-code stuff i think the thin man which we both love is a 1934 Mm -hmm. movie but it is considered pre-code there are a few more years of joy and then that darn haze code Making things lame all around. Bummer. Bummer. What are we talking about next time? Next time we're talking about the 42nd Academy Awards or the films of 1969. The nominees that year were Anne of the Thousand Days, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, Hello Dolly, Midnight Cowboy, and 
Z or Z. Yeah, we're really not sure, but it's another Costa Gavras, so we're excited. (laughs) Yeah, it's just the letter Z. Yep. Have you seen any of those movies? Uh, Yeah, I've seen Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. How about you? Same. The other ones will be new. Okay, it's exciting. We got a musical. We got political commentary. We've got... Yes. We're also going to be very clearly (laughs) postcode. Yep. For sure. But that'll be interesting. It's, there's an interesting conversation to be had about Midnight Cowboy. So mm-hmm. looking forward to it. In the meantime, if you have comments, questions, or concerns, reach out to us at OscarsWrongPod at gmail.com and on Twitter and Letterboxd at OscarsWrongPod. Check out our new website, OscarsWrongPod.com. And if you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend, leave us a review, and subscribe. New episodes come out every other Friday at 6 o'clock Eastern, wherever you get your podcasts. 